0: If you're visiting with us, this is a time in our gathering when we uh, hear the Word of God read, the Word of God preached. And so for the next 50 or 60 minutes, uh, we're going to spend some time in the book of Leviticus. We've been working our way through the book of Leviticus. We started chapter 1, verse 1, made our way through the first 16 chapters, took a break, and now we are, are back working our way till the end, Lord willing, of Leviticus. And so we're in Leviticus 23. Pastor Dale already read it. I'm going to read it again. Leviticus chapter 23, page 300, or 171 uh, in the church Bibles, uh, verse 26. says, And Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, On exactly the tenth day of the seventh month is the Day of Atonement. It shall be a holy convocation for you, and you shall humble your souls and bring an offering by fire near to Yahweh. And you shall not do any work at this same time on the same day, for it is a day of atonement to make atonement on your behalf before Yahweh your God. If there is any person who will not humble himself on this day, he shall be cut off from his people. As for any person who does not who does any work on the same day, that person I will cause to perish from among his people. Verse 31, you shall do no work at all. It is to be a perpetual statute throughout all your generations, in all your places of habitation. It is to be a Sabbath of complete rest to you, and you shall humble your souls on the ninth of the month at evening, from evening until evening you shall keep your Sabbath. This is God's ancient holy word. Let's ask him for help. Open our eyes that we may see wondrous things in your Torah, for we are sojourners, exiles. Lord, we need your help in the midst of a world of distractions, of Beeps and buzzes from smartphones, smartwatches, tablets. Lord, I pray that you would enable us to, as Mary took the posture of sitting at your feet, help us to hear from your word and to respond with proper repentance and faith. Lord, help us in Jesus' name, amen. Imagine with me for a moment going to a holiday like Christmas or Easter over grandma's house or another relative's house. The anticipation is in the air. Your mouth may even be watering over the thoughts of many wonderful, delicious delicacies that you will feast upon. And you arrive there and are told there's actually no food. It is not a feast day, but it is a fast day. It is a day that we are going to sit and contemplate our own sinfulness and our need for atonement. Now, if you're anything like myself, you may think, well, that sounds very disappointing. And yet this was one of the holy days in Israel's on Israel's ancient calendar. In fact, I think if I were to rename this series, I wouldn't call it Meeting Jesus at the Feasts of Israel. I might call it Meeting Jesus at the Holy Days of Israel because the reality is is that not all of them included feastings and happy times. As we're going to see with this particular uh, uh, holiday, the Day of Atonement, it was very somber. It was a very solemn, holy day. Now, we've been working our way through these various feasts and and trying to see the way in which uh, each of these feasts has a prophetic element that is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we started, uh, you can put that visual up there, we started with the Feast of Passover. That was on the, the first month of, in the first month of the year. And we see, obviously this is remembering the exodus from Egypt, but we also saw the prophetic element of this feast was one in which Christ himself is the Passover, right? And wouldn't you know that Jesus himself uh, dies on Passover day. And so Christ himself is the fulfillment of that Passover feast. And then we moved on to the beginnings. The next day followed the the beginning of the seven day feast of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And it was on that Saturday that Christ lies flat in the grave. And so we see on the Feast of Unleavened Bread, there was the flat bread, the bread that was, that didn't contain yeast. And so we see Christ fulfilled in the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And then we looked at the Feast of First Fruits which was uh, celebrating the first fruits of the early spring harvest. And by the way, these first three feasts uh, were in the springtime. On our calendar would have been, you know, roughly April, May uh, during the year. And, and, and again, Jewish people still observe these feasts today. Um, and so this third feast, the Feast of first uh you can probably guess, uh, which was observed shortly after the Feast of Unleavened Bread uh, on the third day was fulfilled on that third day when Christ rose from the dead. And so it's no wonder that the authors of the New Testament, especially the Apostle Paul himself in 1 Corinthians 15, speaks of Christ as the first fruits of the resurrection. And so that, that was the first three feasts that we see fulfilled with the first coming of Christ. And then some 50 days later, Uh, was the Feast of Pentecost, or the the, the Feast of Harvest. And and by the way, I mentioned last week from Exodus chapter 23, there was three pilgrimage feasts. um, That there was three times that the Israelites were to gather uh, for worship in Jerusalem. They they couldn't gather every Sabbath in Jerusalem, because if you lived 30 miles away, 60 miles away, there, there was... You just didn't have the means to travel and gather at the tabernacle and then later the temple. And so there was three pilgrimage feasts. In, in uh, The first was the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which you can see because it's within a basically a, a week-long period. You could get the first three feasts. And then there was the Feast of Pentecost. That was the second pilgrimage feast. And then the Feast of Tabernacles, which we're going to see later. If you travel to each of the, the three mandated feasts, you could get all seven feasts in because there, some of them were clustered together. And so obviously in Acts chapter 2, we see the fulfillment of Pentecost, right? And, and there was the, the imagery with that feast uh, contained you know, two loaves of bread and two, two lambs as as wave offerings. And, and we saw in the New Testament the picture of two becoming one, Jew and Gentile in the body of Christ. And so we see this the the beginnings of the fulfillment of this on Pentecost, and so that that moves us further. There's a lengthy period then between these last the first three feasts and then Pentecost fifty days later, and the last three feasts. Which sure enough, because these feasts are harvest feasts, they're at the end. These are like September, October feasts. Um, that it makes sense that these feasts would be uh, feasts that are related to the second coming of Christ. You read through the New Testament, Jesus regularly alludes to the coming, his second coming, the coming judgment as what? As a harvest, right? Remember the wheat and the tares? And so these last three feasts, which were harvest feasts, they they find their fulfillment in the future. And isn't it interesting there's a gap in between? That's kind of like where we are right now, right? We live between the comings of Christ, between those first three feasts in in Pentecost and those last three feasts. And so, on the first day of the seventh month, there was the Feast of Trumpets. That's what we looked at last time. And sure enough, when we read the New Testament, it speaks of the trumpet blast going forth and Christ descending from heaven And God's people being gathered, just like the the trumpet blast in the Old Testament was to gather God's people, so the trumpet blast in the New Testament gathers people to Christ as Christ descends from the air. And then this week, 10 days later, after the Feast of Trumpets was Yom Kippur, as Jewish people will call it today. So there's your... First two Hebrew vocabulary words for this morning, Yom, Day, Kippur, Atonement, Day of Atonement. Now, if you were with us when we began this series in the book of Leviticus, you might remember a teaching on the Day of Atonement, and I was tempted even to skip teaching on this holiday, uh, because we covered it when we were in chapter 16, which is the most lengthy section in all the Bible on the Day of Atonement. And you remember they included, as we'll cover this morning, the, the casting of the lots and the scapegoat. One goat is offered unto Yahweh, another goat is sent out into the desert, and obviously has such rich pictures and ritual that is fulfilled in which coming of Christ, the first or the second? The first coming, right? His death. Him being the sacrifice. Him being the priest. And you say, well, okay. But except these last three feasts, you said, find their fulfillment at the end of the age. When Christ comes again. The trumpet blast signaling the coming of Christ. But the day of atonement seems to have fulfillment with the first coming of Christ. Well, I do think there are hints at fulfillments also in the future as well. But for that, you're going to have to hang on and hang tight. Okay, that will be point number three. So let's 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 think through this feast. Let's let's look at the passage in Leviticus 23, verses 26 and following, and then we'll spend some time in Leviticus 16 to go back to refresh our memory about the importance of this feast and its fulfillment in the first coming, and then we'll, we'll close by seeing its fulfillment uh, in the second coming. So, verse 26, Yahweh spoke, we're in Leviticus 23, Yahweh spoke to Moses saying, on exactly the tenth month of the seventh month, it is the day of atonement. So it's the tenth day of the seventh, mo- uh, seventh month so remember we talked about last week, it's, this is a kind of a Sabbath month, right? Uh, this seventh month was would have been a, a, a month of rest that included the last three feasts on the calendar. It shall be a holy convocation for you, and you shall humble your souls and bring an offering by fire near to Yahweh. So what we're going to see in chapter 23 The counsel is mostly, the instruction is mostly for the worshiper, the Israelite, okay? In chapter 16, most of the instruction is for the priests and what they're to be doing, especially the high priests. Okay. And so here we see this instruction given for the Israelite, because again, the Israelite, he wasn't going to be involved, you know, with the scapegoat. I mean, he'll be there watching the, the scapegoat run out into the desert, but, but he doesn't have involvement in that. Okay. So if you're a fellow Israelite, you're coming there and this is your responsibility. Humble yourself before the Lord. As some of your translations may say, afflict yourself. Jewish tradition interprets this as a fast okay now the word doesn 't actually mean fast, but it, 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 you know it could carry that idea, and certainly there 's a sense in which when you are humbling yourself and you 're serious about sin and you see your need for atonement there 's almost like um, a realization how can I eat how can i eat how can I eat when i 'm still a rebel against my king. And you are also to bring an offering by fire near to Yahweh, verse 28. And you shall not do any work on the same day, for it is a day of atonement to make atonement on your behalf before Yahweh your God. So again, the key is on atonement. We're gonna see that from chapter 16. But also, this was to be a Sabbath, A day of rest, okay? So whether it fell on that that weekly Sabbath every seventh day or whether it was in the middle of the week, depending on the calendar year, it was to be a day of rest. Verse 29, if there is any person who will not humble himself on this same day, he shall be cut off from his people. And as for any person who does, does any work on this same day, that person I will cause to perish from among his people. So here, smack dab in the middle of this section on the Day of Atonement, in verse 29 and 30, is a very serious warning, right? If you don't humble yourself, and if you don't observe this as a day of rest, there are consequences, God will cut you off. So it was very serious for the Israelites to observe this day. Verse 31, you shall do no work on it at all. It shall be a perpetual statute throughout your generations and all your places of habitation. It is to be a Sabbath of complete rest to you. And again, here the third time, the third time in the short section before between verse 26 and 32, here's this statement again, and you shall humble your souls on the ninth of the month at evening from the evening until evening you shall keep your Sabbath. Because again, the Jewish day would, Start the the evening and then it would go to the following evening. And so there was to be a full day of self-abasement, self-humbling in light of the reality of God's atonement. It was also to be a day of rest where there was to be a cease from any work, complete rest. And it is interesting, these two responses of rest and self-humbling... In the New Testament, when you read Hebrews chapter 3 and 4, it talks about Sabbath being fulfilled in our rest in Christ, where we cease from trying to merit any favor before God, and we trust in Him alone for our salvation. And this self-humbling being a kind of repentance, abasing yourself. And so it's very interesting, in light of this ancient atonement, the proper responses was faith and repentance, trust, ceasing from works righteousness, trusting in the promise of God and self-abasement, self-humbling repentance. And if you don't, with that ancient feast, you would be cut off. God's judgment would be upon you. And it's the same for the new covenant. If you don't respond properly to the atonement that is fulfilled in Christ, you are cut off. God's judgment hangs over you. And so, for the rest of our time this morning, I want us to think about three reasons to respond to the atonement by taking sin seriously through repentance and faith. First, because the better priest. Turn back to Leviticus 16. As I mentioned before, Leviticus 16, Day of Atonement. This is the the longest section we have on any of the feasts in the book of Leviticus. It's the only holiday that gets its own chapter. Okay, Moses decided to give it its own chapter. It's in the middle of Leviticus. It's a centerpiece of Leviticus. It is also, dare I say, the centerpiece of the entire first five books of the Bible. Because Leviticus itself is in the center of those first five books it's it's so it is if you miss this you miss the first five books of the bible okay and this by the way this is somewhat of an aside but this is one of the reasons why any observance of the day of atonement today in Judaism is a shell it's a shell why because it misses the entire heart of the day of atonement namely the atonement that's provided okay and and it's very interesting uh, when you study rabbinical tradition, not that I've studied, but you know I can read, um, read what people say about rabbinical tradition. Uh, the rabbis, especially after seventy A.D., there was one rabbi in particular, because there was the acknowledgment after the destruction of the temple in seventy A.D. There was no longer any temple. There was no longer any priesthood. All the genealogical records had been destroyed. You couldn't even provide proof as to whether you were a descendant of Aaron or not. There was a rabbi who said basically, okay, well, as long as you repent, repentance is equal to atonement. So repentance, if you, if you want your sins paid for, the way for your sins to be paid for is through repentance. And it Set Judaism on a trajectory of work salvation from which it's never returned even to this day. Okay? Because they miss the reality that this is fulfilled in Christ. Okay? He is that atonement. And this is what we'll see in Leviticus 16. Leviticus 16.1, now Yahweh spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they came near to the presence of Yahweh and died. And Yahweh said to Moses, tell your brother Aaron that he shall not enter at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat which is on the ark so that he will not die for I appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. Aaron shall enter the holy place with this, with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. So what God's saying here is this ancient tent, translated here the tabernacle, which is really the idea of the dwelling. This was the dwelling place of Almighty God. That Aaron and his descendants, namely the high priest, was only allowed to go into this inter- holy place, the holy of holies, where there was this mercy seat one day, one time of the year, and it was on this particular day, the day of atonement. On the seventh month, on the tenth day of that month, only that time was anyone to approach Yahweh in this tabernacle. So much that, and there's this warning that kind of hangs over it, right? Remember Nadab and Abihu. They offered strange fire, Leviticus chapter 10, and God brought fire down from heaven and killed them on the spot. So it was kind of a job that Osho would be concerned about. Okay? It was many job hazards here, okay? Many things you could do wrong. Verse 3 says he was to bring a bull from the herd a ram for a burnt offering. There was to be sacrifice for himself. Verse four, he shall put on the holy linen tunic and the linen undergarments uh, shall be next to his body and he shall be girded with the linen sash and attire with the linen turban. These are holy garments. Then he shall bathe his body in water and put them all, on. So the, 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 the garb of the priest or the uniform of the priest was to be one of linen garments, all whites, now, this is significant when, when you read Exodus chapter 28 and 29, also uh, Leviticus chapter 8 and 9. The normal wardrobe, the normal uniform of the priest was purples and golds. It was all royal colors, even a, a golden turban. But now for the Day of Atonement, it's all whites. There was a, and I think the, the imagery there is there's, there's to be the realization he's coming in humility as a representative sinner on behalf of sinners. That the, this high priest was not to go in there strutting his stuff like he's something. But with all whites realizing. He's just a fellow sinner in need of sacrifice for himself. And so, when we read the New Testament, the New Testament sees this as fulfilled in Christ. While Christ himself is not a descendant of Aaron from the tribe of Levi, the author of Hebrews labors to point out because Jesus was of what tribe? He's of the tribe of Judah, which was essential to what office? Him being the king, right? Remember, way back in Genesis 48, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. He used to be a descendant of David, all that. But Jesus is not a descendant of Levi. He's not from Aaron's tribe. But the author of Hebrews argues he's he's a high priest in the order of what? Melchizedek. He quotes from Psalm 110. We don't have time to go into all that. Maybe maybe we'll do a series on leviticus or on the, the book of hebrews sometime in the future but for our purposes notice hebrews chapter 9 verse 24 and 25 for christ did not enter the holy places made with hands mere copies of the true ones but into heaven itself and now appears in the presence of god for us nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy places year by year with the blood that is not his own. What the author of Hebrews is saying here is that once a year, the high priest in the Old Testament, as we're reading here, on the tenth day of the seventh month, he would enter into that holy place and he would make sacrifices on behalf of himself And he would come back the next year and do the same thing. And then the next year, the same thing. And then he would come back the next year and do the same thing. And this was to happen year after year. But the author of Hebrews says, but this priest, he entered not the earthly sanctuary, not the earthly dwelling place of God, but heaven." And he doesn't come year after year. He doesn't come in the sacrifice of the Mass as the Roman, as Roman Catholicism teaches week after week, day after day. No, he offered this sacrifice once for all, demonstrating that it was sufficient, that he is a better priest, as we're going to see in a minute, with a better sacrifice. And because he's a better priest, because he's a better representative, the the priests of old, they had to offer sacrifices on behalf of themselves. Why? Because they were fellow sinners. In fact, one of the fellows mentioned in Leviticus 16 here, Aaron. He was a real piece of work, wasn't he? Right? Remember uh, Exodus 32? Moses has been delayed on the mountain. He's been with God a while. And the people have this brilliant idea. I think we should make a golden calf. Despite the reality God had just said in Exodus 20, to make no graven images in the likeness of heaven above on the earth beneath or as in the water under the earth, you should not bow down before them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And Aaron says, Great idea. And then when he's confronted by this reality, by Moses, he does something very Adamic. Very Adam-like. You know the people. He doesn't take responsibility for him being a bad representative, a bad leader. He just throws it on the people. Nadab and Abihu mentioned Aaron's sons doing something in rebellion against the Lord that he told them not to do, that he didn't tell them to do, and they did it, and God strikes them dead. And so each of these priests, whatever priest, was serving as high priest that year, as he went into that, before he went into that inner part of the tabernacle, had to offer sacrifices on behalf of himself. Why? Because he was a fellow sinner. But Jesus, he didn't have to offer sacrifices on behalf of himself. Why? Because he was no sinner. He was a perfect sinner. Representative. He still is a perfect representative. He obeyed God's commands perfectly. In the language of the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 2, who, although being in the very form of God, did not regard equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He took upon the role of a servant and he became obedient. Obedient even to the point of death upon a cross. He was the perfect. Obedient high priest. Say, that sounds nice, Matt, but what's that got to do with me? Well, you need perfect representation before God. You need one to stand as your representative, not like Adam, not like Aaron, not like Nadab and Abihu. Not one who needs a sacrifice on behalf of himself, but you need one who's a perfect representative, who had a perfect life of obedience and can represent you before a holy, perfect God whose standards of righteousness are unflexible. One who does not just merely wink at sins, but has a perfect standard of righteousness that must be perfectly fulfilled, perfectly obeyed, and that is only found in the Lord Jesus himself. Imagine with me a vagrant sitting outside of a convenience store. I was just in Southern California a couple of weeks ago. It's not hard for me to imagine that. I, we were even in Malibu. We went to the beach in Malibu, and there was a vagrant there. Imagine this vagrant who's panhandling, hustling money off of people, begging. And the owner of this convenience store has an ongoing unfriendly relationship with this vagrant. And he's regularly having to tell this vagrant, get off my property, get out of here, stop bothering my consumers. And imagine this vagrant, he's kind of hanging out around the perimeter of the parking lot of this convenience store. And then all of a sudden a guy pulls up in a half-million-dollar Tesla. Bright, shining, brand-new car. Gets out of the car. He's wearing several thousand-dollar three-piece suit, Rolex watch. And that panhandler sees him. Starts kind of walking a little bit closer to him. And the wealthy man says, come here. And he tells him, I'm going to buy you whatever you need in this convenience store. Whatever you're hungry for, whatever needs you have, come in. And so they go in the convenience store. And you can just imagine the look on the owner of the convenience store's face. He's in awe of the wealthy man but then he sees close behind him the vagrant. Get out of here. Get off my property. And then that wealthy man says he's with me. Whatever whatever he wants put on my tab. You see that's representation. (laughs) Without that The vagrant's not getting in the convenience store. But with it, okay, is a welcome guest. In a similar way, you cannot prance into heaven representing yourself. You're filthy. Your debt is great. You're not wanted. But with Christ as your representative, when you're united to him by faith, when you're connected to Him, you have a perfect representative. And you're welcome. Welcome in to heaven. Friend, do you have Jesus as your representative? Have you laid hold of Him by faith? Have you ceased from works righteousness, in exercise? Sabbath in the sense of resting in Him and Him alone for your eternal salvation? Or are you still on the treadmill of good works, trying to gain acceptance before God, thinking that God will just wink at the bad things you've done? Or maybe, maybe my good things will outweigh my bad things. No, my friend, you smell like a vagrant before God. And you need perfect representation to be accepted before Him. This should help us as believers to see the seriousness of our sin, that we need a perfect priest, a better priest. Charles Haddon Spurgeon says most of our sins are conglomerates. A conglomerate of sins. A sin may be compared to a honeycomb. There are as many sins within one sin as there are cells within the piece of a honeycomb. Sin is swarming, hiving, teeming thing. You can never estimate its full vileness nor perceive all its evil bearings. All sorts of sins may hide away even in one sin. It's true. Just one sin. I mean, you can, you can see all kinds of violations of God's standard in any one sin. The Israelites in ancient Israel were to abase themselves before God on this day of atonement, realizing their own sin. As new covenant Christians, you should abase yourself before God. Grieve over your own filth before God. Thomas Watson in his book The Godly Man's Picture he asks the question why is a godly man a weeper? Is not sin pardon which is the ground of joy? Has, not, has he not had a transforming work upon his heart? Why then does he weep? And then Watson lays out these reasons for the godly man to weep despite the reality he's forgiven despite the reality that he's been transformed and he's not what he used to be. Watson says this, he weeps for indwelling sin. He remembers Romans 7.23 that the law in his member is sin. The outbursts and first risings of sin. His nature is a poison fountain. A regenerate person grieves that he carries with him that which is enmity against God. The realization that you have in your own thinking, in your own desiring, uh, uh, this rebellious nature that is still there. While it's been subdued and overthrown by Christ himself, it's still there. There's still treasonous thoughts. There's still rebellious thinking and believing and desiring that God says, no, no, this is not for you, my child. And so the godly man grieves over the reality of indwelling sin. The godly man also weeps for clinging corruption. If he could get rid of his sin, there would be some comfort, but he cannot shake off this viper. Sin cleaves to him like leprosy. Though a child of God forsakes his sin, yet sin will not forsake him. Concerning the rest of beasts, they have their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season. So though the dominion of sin is taken away, yet its life is prolonged for a season, and while sin lives, it molests. The Persians were daily enemies to the Romans and would always be invading their frontiers. So sin wars against the soul, and there is no cessation of war until death will not this cause tears so it's the reality that that we can't shake ourselves from this corruption it's it's like you know it's like barnacles that just hang on us or it's like those you know those plants with those little furry, sticky things. When you're walking through the woods, they just kind of cling to you and you take one off and there seems to be 10 more and and you just can't get them off you and and, and you're trying to obey the Lord but you, you realize you still keep sinning. This is the proper response to the day of atonement, the realization that we need a better priest. God says, humble yourself, humble yourself, humble yourself. But not only because of the better Priest, but the better sacrifice. We're still in Leviticus 16. Look at verses 7 through 10. And he shall take the two goats and present them before Yahweh at the doorway of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one lot for Yahweh and the other lot for the scapegoat. Then Aaron shall bring the goat on which the lot for Yahweh fell and he shall offer it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot for the scapegoat fell shall be presented alive before Yahweh to make atonement on it, to send it out into the wilderness as the scapegoat. And so, if you remember when we studied Leviticus 16, there was this ceremony, this ritual that happened once a year, probably uh, some of it taking place behind the, the curtain of the tabernacle where there was lots cast over two goats, and one lot, you know, evidently would have said something like, to Yahweh, uh, to the wilderness, to uh, the Hebrew word azazel, in uh, whichever lot the one fell uh, 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 unto the Lord, this goat was to be sacrificed unto the Lord. And this was to appease God's judgment on behalf of the sins of the people. And then another lot, the lot that fell on the The other goat, the scapegoat, the priest would then take that goat outside of the tabernacle, lay both hands on the head, and confess all the sins of of the people. And that goat would be driven out into the desert. And now, Jewish tradition says that that goat would be escorted to a cliff and shoved off the cliff. Perhaps that's because, you know, maybe a couple of days later, you might, you know, see that goat around there. Hey, that, this is supposed to be our sins on that goat cast into the desert. And he's here trying to get our sandwiches at this picnic here. Scram, goat. Now, that part about kicking the goat off the cliff is not in the Bible. But you can see how it would you know, it could come about in Jewish tradition. But but what's the point? Again, this was to be on behalf of the sins of the people. And so then when we come to the New Testament, again, the author of Hebrews, clearly alluding to this, this holy day, he writes in, in Hebrews chapter 9, the first five verses, he talks about the earthly tabernacle, And then he says in in verse 6 of Hebrews 9, Now when these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle to perform the divine worship. But into the second, only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. Verse 8, the Holy Spirit is signifying this. That the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshipper perfect in conscience. What, What he's saying is that. This happened year after year after year. It couldn't clean the conscience of the worshiper. Why? There was this. I I mean, imagine. Imagine you are an ancient Israelite. You attend this feast. You know, the, the goat comes out, it's taken into the wilderness, and there's this realization thank you, God, my sins are forgiven. Then you get on your donkeys, you're on your way home. And you get in an argument with your wife. Imagine that. Imagine that. You snap at your wife. You snap at your kids. And now all of a sudden there's this thought, oh my goodness. I have 364 days until the next day of atonement. What on earth can I do? Your, your conscience would always be nagging you. Are my sins paid for? Are they not? And, and, and the author of Hebrews labors the point that that the blood of bulls and goats does not take away sin. That, that these were pictures, shadows that were fulfilled in Christ. But there was a promise attached to them that you had to believe what God had said in the older covenant. Verse 10. Since they, that is, these sacrifices uh, relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed upon uh, uh, imposed until a time of reformation. Verse eleven. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands. That is to say. Not of this creation. And not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more the blood of Christ who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Friend, Jesus... In his first coming, fulfills this picture that we see in the Old Testament. In a marvelous way, the regular year after year coming into that most holy place by the high priest was but a picture. Christ is the better priest, but he also offers a better fac- sacrifice. And the imagery even breaks down, because those high priests in the Old Testament, they would offer that goat unto the Lord, but they themselves never climbed onto that mercy seat and slit their own throats. But this priest, he himself becomes the sacrifice. As he offers his hands to those Roman soldiers, as he suspended between heaven and earth. Dying a public, humiliating death as a sacrifice on behalf of sinners. He himself becomes that sacrifice. And he enters into a tabernacle not made with hands. He offers that sacrifice before Yahweh God in heaven. And it is accepted as an adequate sacrifice to pay for all of your sins so that you can have full forgiveness in Christ. This, my friends, should cause us to see the grievous reality of our own sin. To, as with the ancient holy day, to abase ourselves, to humble ourselves before God. There's no more humbling thing in the world to realize that in order for you to be forgiven and accepted before God, God had to send His own Son as a perfect high priest to be a perfect sacrifice on your behalf. You need a better sacrifice. Christ provides this, my friend. One author tells a sad story. He says he recently watched a televised statement of, revo- of remorse of a convicted killer just prior to his sentencing. With what seemed to be genuine pathos, the young man tearfully apologized to the court, to the parents of the boy that he had murdered, whose life had been brutally ended, and he apologized to his own family for the shame and embarrassment that he had brought them through. And then he says, but perhaps the most pathetic moment came a few minutes later when the judge pronounced a sentence of 25 years to life in prison. Stunned, the young man glancing uncomprehendingly from his lawyers to his mom seated behind him, he said, but I said, I'm sorry. Well, sorry wasn't going to pay for his crimes. And while we should be sorry for our sin, you need an atonement. You need a sacrifice. And again, Judaism today says, well, repentance replaces the sacrifice. No. Jesus replaced the sacrifice. And you need to believe in him. And... To have genuine self-abasement, self-humbling over the realization of your own sin because of it. Again, Thomas Watson says, the godly man should grieve. He says, a child of God weeps that he is sometimes overcome by the prevalence of corruption. He quotes romans seven nineteen for I do not do what I want to do, but I practice the evil that I do not want to do. Paul was like a man carried downstream. How often a saint is overpowered by pride and passion when David had sinned, he he steeped his soul in the brinish tears of repentance. It cannot but grieve a regenerate person to think that he should be so foolish as after he has felt the smart of sin to still put this fire in his bosom again. Child of God, humble yourself. Watson also says a Godly heart grieves out of a sense of God's love. He says, gold is the finest and most solid of all metals, yet it is soon melted in the fire. Gracious hearts, which are golden hearts, are the soonest melted into tears by the fire of God's love. I once knew a holy man who was walking in his garden, shedding plenty of tears, when a friend came on him accidentally and asked him why he wept. He broke forth with this pathetic expression, oh, the love of Christ, the love of Christ. Thus have we seen the cloud melted into water by the sunbeams. Friend, is this not the sentiment of your heart when you realize what Christ has done for you, that He is that better sacrifice, that He was the one who bore hell upon earth on your behalf as you ponder Him hanging there in agony, not for His own sin but for your cosmic crimes That your heart is melted. That he would do that for you. That it was your crimes that put him there. Child of God, humble yourself before this great God. See your own sin in light of the Savior's love. Not in such a way, again, to dwell upon your own sin, but to then move to dwell upon The better sacrifice of Christ. So, abase yourself in repentance and faith because of the better priest, because of the better sacrifice. And now, as I promised, how does this relate to the second coming, the future, the better purging? Well, when you read Leviticus 16, you realize that atonement is being made not merely on behalf of the sins of the people, Almost in a strange kind of way. It's also made on behalf of the altar and on behalf of the tabernacle itself. Listen to 16, 18 to 21. Then he shall go out to the altar that is before Yahweh and make atonement for it. It referring to the altar. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and the blood of the goats and put it on the horns of the altar on all sides. With his finger he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it seven times and cleanse it and set it apart as holy from the uncleanness of the sons of Israel. And when he finishes making atonement for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall bring near the live goat. Then, this, then Aaron shall lay both hands on the head of the live goat, confess over it, And then the goat was to be sent out. And then verse 32 and 33 summarize this. So the priest who is anointed and ordained to minister as priest in his father's place shall make atonement. He shall thus put on the linen garments, the holy garments, and make atonement for the holy sanctuary. He shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar, he shall also make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. So, for our years in 2023, this seems weird, right? Okay, I get atonement for the people, but for the altar, for the sanctuary, for the tabernacle, that's kind of weird, right? But not when you understand the symbolism. Not when you understand the reality of, again, all those clean, unclean laws, which were laws related to, you know, coming into contact with bodily fluids and unclean animals. You you couldn't come into the holy place, the tabernacle, with that uncleanness. But no doubt sometimes it happened. And so there had to be a purging, a kind of blood purging with this particular sacrifice, the sin offering with the splattering of blood to purge the place. Not only to purge the people, but to purge the place. We see it in a similar way in chapter 18. Remember when God gives all those laws against all manner of sexual perversion. And he says in 1825, so the land has become defiled and I have brought its punishment upon it and the land has vomited out its inhabitants. But as for you, you keep my statutes, my judgments, and you shall not do any of these abominations, neither native nor sojourner living among you. In other words, God says, okay, the people had defiled the land. So here we have the land could become defiled. The tabernacle could become defiled. What's going on here? Well, you have to remember the tabernacle was a symbol of the Garden of Eden. You may not have been here for some of our previous studies, but what do you have embroidered on the curtain on the way into the Holy of Holies? But cherubim. When were cherubim mentioned previously? Genesis chapter 3. When there are cherubim with flaming swords guarding the way back into Eden. Even the directionality here of the purging, everything was to go east. Just as Adam and Eve were driven east of Eden. I wonder if this is east. This is east. Driven east of Eden. Okay? It's also pictured with things, uh, the different imagery of the lampstand looks like a tree, similar to the tree of life. Adam, the verbs used for Adam working the garden were the same verbs that were used for the priest working and serving in the tabernacle. And and really we could go on and on. And Eden was to kind of be an outpost on planet earth whereby dominion was to be exercised over all the earth, and God would dwell with his people. But that's not how it happened, is it? But that's how it will happen in the future. And so, what we have in the purging of the tabernacle, in the blood being applied all through the holy space, the holy place, is a picture that we find fulfillment in the New Testament where God purges planet earth. And so that the prayer that Jesus taught his people to pray is ultimately answered, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We see this imagery is alluded to, even in in the reality. remember back in Hebrews, it said the earthly tabernacle was a replica of what heaven. Uh, listen to Hebrews chapter eight, verse one. Now the main point of what is being said is this: We have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne, of the majesty in heavens. Minister in the holy places in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. for every high priest is, uh, is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, so it is necessary that this High Priest have something to offer now if it were now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law, but erect the tabernacles. For see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry by, by as much as he is a mediator of a better covenant which we have enacted on better promises. And so the tabernacle was a picture of Eden which was ultimately to be how planet earth was supposed to be. And so you say, how is this fulfilled in the future? It's fulfilled when God purges the earth, purges the world of sin, incarcerates it in hell, puts it in the lake of fire that burns with brimstone forever and ever, and there's a new heaven and a new earth. This is what we see in the book of Revelation, Revelation 22.3. And there will no longer be any curse. And the throne of God and the lamb will be in it. And the bond servants will serve him. Revelation twenty one twenty seven and nothing defiled and no one who practices abomination and lying will ever come into it but only those who are na- whose names are written in the lamb's book of life. Revelation twenty two one through four and he showed me a river of the water of life bright as crystal coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of its street on either side of the river there was a tree of life bearing twelve kinds of fruit yielding its fruit every month and the leaves and the were we're for the healing of the nations and there will no longer be any curse and the throne of God and the lamb will be in it and his slaves will serve him and they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. And we can go on and on. But the reality is, is that this is fulfilled in the future when God purges this world of sin and uncleanness so that This is based upon the first coming of Christ and the blood is ultimately applied throughout the world so that the creation which groans in eager expectation also is liberated. You say, well, what's the significance of that? Well, the significance of that is that one day God will dwell with us on earth that's what he promises and that's what's necessary just like it was for him to dwell with his people in the tabernacle of old to dwell in the land with his people sin had to be dealt with and so he promises in revelation 21 3 and 4 and god himself will be with them as their god he tabernacles with his people And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death will be no more. Neither will there be mourning. Nor crying. Nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed. And so friend. This should cause us. To again abase ourselves. Realizing that we live. In a sense between. The different feasts. We live between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. And we realize that the sin that remains in our own hearts is not what it will be in the future, and it's also not what it ought to be. God promises a world where there's no cancer centers for children. There's no hospitals. There's no hospice care. There's no obituaries. There's no more funerals. Because death has been conquered. Jesus, risen from the grave, also promises to resurrect this world. To be a kind of restored Eden where he dwells with his people and his people are finally Home with him. The preacher George Truett tells a story of a boy from Georgia who was slowly dying in a Dallas hospital. Truett recalls he kept saying to me as I visited him repeatedly, If I could just get back home to Georgia. Truett recalls I wrote his father and said, Edgar's case is incurable. He wants to die at home. Soon the plain old farmer came across long miles from Georgia. I did all that I could to help and comfort that fine old father tenderly trying to be mother, nurse, doctor all through the long train ride from Dallas to Georgia. And as they were leaving for home, Truett says, I said to them, write me, about, write me about it when you get home. So several weeks went by and Truett was waiting for a response for this, from this father and this young boy who was dying to see if they made it to Georgia. And after about a week, Truett received a letter that said, we have just come from Edgar's funeral. As we neared home, we prompted him on pillows in the carriage which brought us from the railroad station across the hills and the mountains. When he got inside of his old home here among the trees, he did his best to shout. And when at last he was in, in the home and his mother had kissed him and his sisters and brothers had kissed him, he said, Now I can die in perfect peace because I am home. The day of atonement promises us a home. A home where heaven and earth are purged of uncleanness and sin. A home where God dwells with his people. But it's only through the atonement. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you. We thank you that in Christ we have a better priest, a better sacrifice, and a, and a better purging than that ancient one long ago that gives us better promises. That the realities have been fulfilled in Christ. And it's him we praise this morning. Amen.